Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 7 today. We're going to build on everything that we talked about last week in verses 3 through 6. We're going to build on that today. Last week, the text led us to understand that God is sovereign in salvation. He ordained it, as the kids just learned. That He predestined sinners saved by grace into His family. And that this truth should have a profound impact on us as Christians. And it should lead us, as I mentioned at the end last week, it should, it should lead us to our knees in worship. That's Paul's main thrust in all of this, is to the praise of the glory of God. We have to say that. We have to say praise be to God that He awakens dead sinners. Because nothing and no one who is dead can make themselves alive. That power is not within them because they are dead. So God has to do that. He's the one that grants repentance and faith. And He's the one that makes us alive in Christ to the glory of His name. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14, and then we'll have a word of prayer together. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray together. Father, this is all to the praise of your glory. We see such profound and informative and life-changing truths of your character and your work through this text even this morning. Just these few verses can make a profound impact on our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, that we could, by your grace and for your glory, we could put aside preconceived ideas uh, thoughts of what we think this may be outside of your word, and we could just just sit for a few minutes and focus on what you have to say, what your word has to teach us today. You you are our teacher, and so we thank you for everything that we're going to learn this morning. May it not just impact us in the moment, but cause our lives to be changed. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. As I said. Last week, if you'll remember, verses 3 through 14 is this big, in the Greek, this big giant run-on sentence. It's all one sentence in the Greek. It's 202 words long. One sentence is 202 words long. So I, I remind us of that because this is all one thought for Paul. The work of the Father in predestining sinners the work of the Son in redeeming them, and the work of the Spirit as the guarantor, it's all connected. It's all part of the same thought. It's weaved together. And so I I just think that a lot of Christians, myself included at one point, we, we happily talk and sing about Christ's shed blood on the cross. 
that's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful truth of the forgiveness of sins that we have because of it. The wonderful grace that we talked about in these verses, it says that God lavished on us in Him. And we are, we're quick to talk about those things. The, the radio is full of songs that talk about those things. And, and it should be. We should talk about those things. But you get into God's elective purposes and Christians aren't quite so eager to enter into those kinds of discussions. And yet, this is the first thought I want us to think through. Yet none of Christ's work on the cross, the, the blood that he shed, the forgiveness that we have, none of those things can be severed from the Father's sovereign choice and salvation or the Spirit's guarantee of our inheritance. And yet we te- I think we tend to do that. But they're all intertwined. And if you rip just one of them out, then you have misrepresented them all, in my opinion. And so Paul has told us about the nature and purpose of God as elector. God is the one who does this in verses 3 through 6 that we talked about last week. Now he moves on to explain Christ's work as Redeemer and the Spirit's work as our guarantor. And so I want to start in verse 7. And we're just going to kind of walk through some thoughts here in these verses. And first, I want us to notice Christ's work as Redeemer. It says it right there in verse 7. It says, in Him, talking about Christ, of course, in Him we have redemption. I want to just pause on that word for a second. I want us to notice something. Paul, from the get-go, assumes something here. Because the way he writes, he assumes that mankind is captive. That we're bound in slavery. Why else would we need to be redeemed? Paul, Paul lists Christ as the Redeemer. Why would we need a Redeemer if we weren't already bound? Paul just presupposes that this is true. And it is true. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Our natural state, brothers and sisters, our natural state is being under a curse. Is being under the curse of sin and death. The redemption that Paul speaks of here has this feeling of like when a slave is set free or when a prisoner of war is released and returns home. That's the thought process here. We can make this correlation, I think, pretty easily though. Because in the same way, sin enslaved us, didn't it? Sin enslaved us and Satan captured us into his kingdom. We're prisoners of war, so to speak, in that way. But Jesus has redeemed his people Back to God. He set us free from the curse of sin and death. Here's what redeem looks like in the dictionary. We're using it in the past tense form, redeem. And here's some of the definitions. It's to save someone from sin, error, or evil. To buy the freedom of someone. Gain or regain possession of something in exchange for a payment. It literally means to buy back. It means to buy back. I think that's an interesting thought. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 through 20. They tell us in verse 20, they say that you are not your own because you were bought with a price. To buy back. Every believer was bought with a price. This is something that I think is important for us to to share when we talk about the gospel with people. It's important for us to share this concept of God's ownership. 
And, and let me explain that just for a second. Every created thing belongs to God. Why? Because He created it. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And so I, I think we then can say, it's fair to say that God created everything, then God owns everything. Specifically, we know people are made different than any other thing in creation. People were made how? In the image of God. Every human being then belongs to God because they are made in His image. We bear some kind of likeness to God, so all people belong to Him. However, just because all people belong to God does not mean that all people are His children. If all people were God's children, then all would be saved. It's obvious not all people are saved. Jesus speaks of this, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Not all are God's children because not all are saved. So then that leads us down this this path of logic. Maybe we're asking this question now then, well then, if that's true, then is Christ's sacrifice, is this redemption that Paul speaks of, is it insufficient for everybody? The Bible says no, and, and I'll lead us to understand that. As I mentioned last week, and as Jason mentioned to the kids, God ordains salvation. And he has given this offer of salvation to all. It's a genuine offer. You see that in Scripture as well. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. That's the distinction that the Bible makes. I want to show that to you. You guys know John 3.16. That verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that what? Whoever believes in him. So the offer is a genuine offer for the world. People from every area of the world. And yet, only those who believe in Him, it says, will have eternal life. Likewise, in John 6, verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Acts sixteen thirty one, the apostles taught this. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Whoever believes is saved. But not all believe. Jesus says this several times in John chapter 6, verse 36. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. John ten twenty six. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Okay, so our understanding of this is starting to round out a little bit. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to all who believe. That's really what the Bible teaches. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, absolutely 100% sufficient for all those who believe. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says that He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Through Jesus, drawing near to God. Hebrews 10.14 also says, By one offering He has perfected forever them that are His. There's specificity in the language that Paul and the author of Hebrews and Jesus himself are using. Scripture is clear that there is a difference between those who believe and those who do not believe, between those who are his and those who are not his. Jesus teaches this. Maybe you're thinking you're, you're pulling these things out of context. Jesus teaches this in Matthew chapter 7 and 25 over and over again, just listen. And you can see them in your notes. They're referenced there. 
Jesus makes comparisons. He says those who enter by the narrow gate and those who enter by the wide gate. Healthy trees and diseased trees. Those who do the will of the Father and those who are workers of lawlessness. The wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Sheep and goats, righteous and cursed, wheat and tares. Jesus uses these comparisons to help us understand that there are some that believe and there are some that don't. And of course, the whole idea of this is that we're calling people to believe. That's the point. It's the point Jesus makes. Don't be the unbeliever. Believe in me, he says. In John chapter 17, verse 2, I mentioned this last week. Jesus says, so that the Father may give eternal life to everyone he has given me. There are some that the Father has given to Jesus for salvation. John 10, 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for my sheep. That's specific language. Jesus makes an important distinction here and it may be one that you've not thought much about. And if this is one of your first thoughts into this, maybe there's some questions that are surfacing, surfacing and you're thinking, okay, if Jesus died for those who believe, if his sacrifice is sufficient for those who believe, does, does that mean that Christ's work on the cross makes it possible for sinners to come to God? Or does Christ's sacrifice on the cross actually reconcile sinners back to God? That's, it seems like a slight, like maybe you think, well, you're just splitting hairs here. But there's, there's a distinction that Jesus is making that I think we need to make. We need to understand this. So in other words, we might ask it this way. Does the death of Jesus Christ make us savable? Or does it make us saved? Think about that. Does the death of Christ make us savable? Or does it make us saved? John Murray, in his book, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, writes this. Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to actually redeem a people to himself. Remember what redeem means, to buy back. Jesus went to the cross, brothers and sisters, assured of what he was going to do and how his sheep would respond. Assured convinced by the father he doesn't come to people to us just saying all right then i've done my part i laid down my life for everyone because i have saving love for everyone in the whole world now if you would only believe and come to me i can save you that's not what jesus says it it almost sounds right though doesn't it but it's but it's not because we have to remember John 10, 26 that we already talked about. Some are Jesus' sheep and some are not. Jesus didn't die hoping lots of people would follow him, would believe in him. He died confident that every single person that the Father would give him would be saved, would definitely believe. So instead, he, he says, I was pierced for your transgressions. I was crushed for your iniquities, for your sins. I have purchased with my blood people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Guys, Jesus' wounds did not just make spiritual healing available. They actually heal. Notice the grammar that Paul uses in verse 7. 
about this. He says, we have redemption. Paul speaks of this as something that's already happened. It's already taken place. You have redemption. Guys, believers, you don't have to hope that God has saved you. He has. You have redemption, Paul says here. Peek over, if you will, at Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Look at those verses in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, and tell me, who has done the heavy lifting here? You understand what I'm asking? Who has done the work here? The Father. He has done these things. He has sent the rescuer. He has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. Guys, this is God's plan that He established before the foundation of the world. This is it. But this redemption, as I mentioned, it it came at a cost. Remember 1 Corinthians 16.20, I already quoted. It says that you are not your own because you were bought with a price. Guys, God offers salvation as a free gift. Romans 6.23 tells us it's a free gift, but it costs something. Absolutely costs something. You know what it costs? It costs the blood of Jesus. Our redemption costs the blood of Jesus. And that redemption, I want us to notice something. Look at back at Ephesians chapter 1. We have redemption through the blood. That's what it cost. And that is linked to something. The redemption that we have is linked to the forgiveness of sins. Man, not only are you redeemed from eternal bondage and slavery, but your sins are wiped clean. Forgiven. Just think on that for a second. What does that do to you? Knowing that your sin has been paid for. What does that do for you? The whole of what this is getting at is praise and glory to the Father. Praise to the glory of His name. If we've gone through the last few weeks and you have not just stood in awe of Christ, I hope that this causes us to. Every hurtful word, every evil deed, every prideful thought, every lustful glance, every hateful attitude for the one who believes in the Son, it's all been forgiven. If everything up to this point has not caused you just to to sit under the weight, the beautiful weight of this, I hope that this does, to recognize this. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14. And just be thrilled. I hope this thrills you. Listen to this as I read it. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that third verse. I think it's the third verse in it as well. I can't even sing it without starting to cry. I was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Your sins have been forgiven, wiped clean, nailed to the cross by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. We also know that if you believe that you've only been forgiven of very little, then you're going to love very little as well. So instead of that, instead of loving very little because we think too highly of ourselves, Jesus uses a lady as an example to his followers. 
she comes to him and she pours out this oil on him and she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. What have you been forgiven for? Every single evil deed, if you believe. This is the guarantee that the Spirit is in our lives. So it's no surprise then, if we keep going, it's no surprise then that Paul says that this redemption and this forgiveness are according to the riches of His grace that He lavished upon us. Guys, there are exactly this many earthly relationships like this. Zero earthly relationships like this. Husbands, you are called, I am called to love our wives this way. The way that Christ loves the church, the way that the Father, the kind of love that the Father has lavished on sinners who believe. But if you ask my wife, she'd probably tell you that she's very rarely felt loved by me in that way. If it has been, it hasn't been for very long. Parents, I mean, you love your kids, especially when they're sleeping at night, right? Because that's, that's when they're the most, they're most behaved and quietest. That's right. Most adorable when they're sleeping. We love to give things to our kids. We love to, to, to just pour out blessings on them. But man, it doesn't take long. Uh, maybe your family's not like mine, but we give our kids something special. It doesn't take long before there's complaining or there's arguing. And I'm just like, are you serious right now? And I lose my temper. And I get frustrated and I get annoyed and I'm not thinking about lavishing love on them anymore. That's not what I'm thinking because I'm irritated. God, our, our earthly relationships, they don't capture what Paul is describing here because we're not coming from a place of complete and perfect love and sacrifice. I'm supposed to love my wife that way, but I rarely, if ever, do. So should that cause her to despair, to think that, She'll never be loved correctly. I hope it doesn't. It shouldn't. It should cause her to run into the arms of the one who always promises to love her this way. Should that cause me as a husband to despair, recognizing, man, I'm, I'm never going to get this right. I'm never going to love my wife the way that I should. That shouldn't cause me to despair. It should cause me as a husband to recognize my deficiencies my sin and to run to the arms of Jesus for forgiveness and for instruction on how to love better. I mean, but God's love is surprising sometimes, isn't it? You can't read Hebrews chapter 12 without understanding this. God's love is surprising sometimes. He loves us perfectly in ways we don't always appreciate. We tend to believe because we hear that God is love we tend to believe that because he's love, he never dislikes what we do. That he always looks past it. But that's not what scripture teaches about God's love. God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12.6. Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. 
God pours out. That's another translation of this. He pour the, the love that He has poured out on us. He's lavished us in. God pours out His love and grace on believers. But that does not mean He just overlooks our sin or sweeps it under a rug or tries to forget it. That's not the kind of love that God has. God deals with our sin. In this life, He deals with our, with our sin through the correction of brothers and sisters, other Christians, to, to stop us short in our sin and call us back to repentance. And sometimes in this life, God uses the church, all of us together, to do that for our brothers and sisters, to do that in people's lives. Ultimately, though, we know that God has eternally dealt with our sin, every bit of it on the cross. The blessings that we have in Christ, they just keep coming, though. If you keep reading in verse 8, it says that He has lavished this kind of grace on us with wisdom and understanding, it says. My mind, when I read this, just immediately went to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It, it's, it's the text that talks about how there's a veil that lies over our hearts. And it can only be removed by Jesus. This wisdom, this understanding, Jesus gives it to us. He helps us understand things about Him, about the Father, that we would never know apart from Him. He removes the veil. When we come to him in belief, this is this wisdom, this understanding. This is not some like transcendental spiritual nirvana kind of a thing. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. This is instead a special and supernatural revealing of who God is and what he does. And look at verses nine and 10. This answers that. What is this? Revealing, 9 and 10 tell us that believers understand the plan of God, the mystery of His will. What is His will? What is the plan of God? He tells us to bring everything together in Christ, in heaven and on earth, to unite all things to Him. That is God's plan, to unite all things to Christ. God has revealed His eternal and unchanging plan and guess what? It revolves around His Son, the Redeemer. That's the plan of God. All of the things that Paul has been talking about are coming to this crescendo in verse 10. You know what a crescendo is, a musical term, that high point, the most intense part of a song. All of what Paul is saying is coming to this crescendo in verse 10. It's all wrapped up in Christ. It's all about Him. There's a pastor named Eric Raymond that says this. I love the way he puts this. He says, here we have the architect of the world turning the light on in our noggins to show us that the supreme reason for everything is the glory of Christ. God has always been about one thing. He has always pointed to Christ as the worthy object of his affections. And I believe, and I hope that you believe that if that's the worthy affections of our God, of God the Father, they should also be the affections of us, of our hearts. John Stott also says, in the fullness of time, God's whole universe and his whole church are, will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. The church and the universe. God is uniting everything to his son. He's tying everything up just as he designed. This is all his design. As if that wasn't enough, 
we keep going. We get into verses 11 through 14. This is another blessing that is ours in Christ, and it's what Paul calls the, in- the inheritance. So we've seen the redemption that we have in Christ, the assurance that we have in Him, and the inheritance that we have are now what Paul is bringing forward. So I want to ask some questions about this. I don't, this helps me understand things a little bit. These are in your notes too. Look at verse 11. We can ask this question, well, how is this inheritance received? It says there, it was predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestined according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his will. I see two things in there that seal this in God's mind and in reality here on earth and in our hearts with salvation. This inheritance that we have was predestined according to the Father and it works according to the counsel of His will. This is God's idea. This is God's plan. Everything that we have in Christ, God predestined from eternity past. This is what this is saying. It's all been according to God's purpose that He set forth in His Son. Verse 12 Why is this inheritance received? Why would anyone get this? So all who hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So Paul says, God predestined this inheritance to those who believe so that his glory might be praised. These blessings, this inheritance, as I mentioned last week, these are for us, but ultimately they're for God. He does this for the praise of his own glory. Look at verse 13. Who is this inheritance received by? Who gets this? Paul, really, there's two things here. For those who, number one, have heard the word of truth, and number two, who believed in him. This is who gets this inheritance, you guys. Paul says that this gospel also is the word of truth. I love the way he puts this. I don't know if he does this any other place, but he he says the gospel is the word of truth. Man, coming to Jesus for salvation means that we leave falsehoods behind we give up our lies we give up our patterns of sin and deception it means abandoning all lies and falsehoods and clinging to the real truth of jesus himself that's what happens in salvation so this is for people who heard the word of the truth and believed in him How will people hear? We talked about this last week, I think from Romans chapter 10. How will people hear if no one is sent? Paul goes through this whole thing and it's, it's right in the middle of this, these chapters of God's sovereignty and salvation and in the world. And Paul says, go. You're sent. Go. Preach the good, good news. People have to hear the word of truth and then they have to believe. Guys, this inheritance is for people who hope in Christ and who believe. Paul continues to teach Human responsibility here. Look at this. Teaches human responsibility right alongside of God's sovereignty and salvation. And for Paul, it doesn't seem to bother him a bit. He doesn't seem to have a problem with it. We wrestle with this. We struggle with this. It's hard on our finite minds. And yet Paul is just like, this is how it is. People receive salvation when they hear the gospel and when they believe in Christ. So we've answered these questions. How is this inheritance received? Why is it received? What's the purpose of it? Who is it received by? And now we get finally get to this. Well, what is it? What's this inheritance that we have? Look at verse 14. 
who is the guarantee, the promised Holy Spirit, the end of 13, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What is this inheritance? It's being sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's being assured in the Holy Spirit. Now, the word sealed carries some weight to it. I want us to understand that. A seal was like a mark of ownership and authenticity. So what kinds of things would have been sealed? Livestock would have been sealed with a brand. Uh, Property would have been sealed with a brand sometimes. Messages, letters, we see that, you know, the wax with the ring signet, that sort of thing. Things are sealed. This is what this word kind of carries with it. Owners would protect their belongings from theft by sealing them with this mark. A mark of authenticity. What, is this, what does Paul say is our mark of authenticity? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit is our, he puts it, our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Guys, believers were saved and sealed by the Spirit. Ephesians later on is going to tell us for the day of redemption in chapter 4, verse 30, it says this. So what this tells me is that God has put his unique mark of authenticity on believers and is going to keep them until the day of redemption. He's going to keep them until the end. And in the meantime, his spirit is with us. John fourteen eighteen says that he has not left us as orphans. When Christ went away, he did not leave us all on our own. Praise be to God. Look at, I'm just going to quickly go through some things that we know how we experience the blessings of the Holy Spirit in our lives now. John 16, through the conviction of sin. There is a world out there that we were once part of that does not understand sin and its effect on God. That's where we were, but the Holy Spirit given to believers convicts us of that. You cannot be settled and okay with your sin anymore as believers. Another thing we see the Spirit is the counselor and comforter. John fourteen sixteen says this. He's our counselor. He's our comforter. John 15 and John 16 also say that He's the revealer of truth. We talked about that already this morning in Ephesians 1. The Spirit helps us to understand the mysteries of God to some degree. He's the revealer of truth. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see that the Spirit distributes gifts to His people. Gifts to the body. In Galatians chapter 5, he says that the Spirit, Paul says that the Spirit produces fruit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things, Paul says the Spirit is given us. So, all of that is now for believers. And in those things, here's the confidence, here's the assurance, here's the guarantee that so many of us struggle with. If you have indeed believed God, and put your faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, then you have been sealed with the Spirit, Paul says, and one day you are going to take possession of that inheritance in full. And while you're here, you can be assured of the Spirit in your life by the things that we just walked through. Are you convicted of sin? Do you rely on Jesus and Him alone as your counselor and comforter? Do you look to Him for the truth? Do you operate in the spiritual gift that He has given you? Are you displaying the fruit of the Spirit? Evaluate yourself. 
do those things describe you? If so, you have confidence that you are in Christ and you have been sealed with the Spirit. And if not, I would pray that you would cry out to God today in repentance and faith. So what does this inheritance produce? This is the last question we're going to kind of ask. What does it produce in verse 14? We see it's going to produce praise. It's going to produce worship. The blessings that are ours in Christ that Paul has just told us about, every one of them is for a common goal to produce one thing to the praise of his glory. We are assured of God's blessings. We, we have the guarantee of the spirit. Somebody cut that kid off. <laughs> Don't trip him. Just stop him. <laughs> we, all of these things that Paul has just told us about are to the praise of his glory. Guys, these are intended to produce in the life of a Christian a sacrifice of praise. The confidence that we have because of the seal and work of the Holy Spirit is for the praise of his glory. The incredible joy we have of having our sins forgiven are for the praise of his glory. The unmerited redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross for all who believe is for the praise of His glory. God uniting all things to and in Christ is for the praise of His glory. Do you see a theme here? Do you see what I'm trying to help us understand here? Guys, this is why we can get over simple disputes among us. This is why we can we want to sing the most Christ-exalting songs that we can sing when we get together. This is why we want to read the Bible well and for all it's worth regularly so that we can absorb this reality that it's all for the praise of His glory. We won't sacrifice truth when we're standing in awe of the fact that God's love has been poured out on us. I wrestled with that sentence this week. But I think it's true. We won't sacrifice truth when we're standing in awe of the fact that God's love has been poured out on us. But not just absorb it or stand in awe of it. I think we need to take it a little step further, as Paul would say here. We need to rejoice in it. Guys, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand this. The gospel message, the truth of his word is clear to all. You don't have to be super smart to get this. You just have to believe the gospel. You just have to believe in Jesus. You don't have to understand it all right away. No person will until glory. And even then, I think we'll be delving into the depths of the goodness of God through eternity. All it takes here is just believing on Jesus. Believing in the gospel. And if that's not something that you've ever truly done, you can believe Him. You can put your faith in Him today. It requires, though, something of you. It requires giving up striving to make yourself right before God. The Bible and our church would say, stop striving to do it all and rest in Christ. Because His sacrifice is right, it's true, and it's perfect. And trying to do it all in your own strength is an impossible task that you've never been called to do. We tend to think that we have to be perfect for God to love us. And the truth is, we never can be. The truth is, only the perfection of Jesus Christ is enough for God to be satisfied. But we have that in Christ the moment that we believe. 
The gospel says you don't have to just be good enough. You simply need to believe in the one who was good enough. I'll repeat Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That may be the simplest call of the gospel that you'll hear. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no requirements. Just believe on the Lord Jesus. That's it. Believe. But you can't believe in yourself and Him at the same time. So you have to believe in Him. The blessings in Christ that we discussed today are yours already if you believe, brothers and sisters. I would be remiss if we walked through verse by verse and missed the big picture. All of these things are to the praise of His glory, but they're for your assurance here. You can see the title of the message this morning is Redemption, Assurance, and Inheritance. We have redemption. We have this inheritance and they're to assure us here on this earth. You can be assured that if those evidences of the Spirit are active in your life, that God is moving, that you're His, that you belong to Him. Believer, your standing before God is sure because of the indwelling guarantee of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ as your constant advocate before the Father. That's how we are assured. Not because we mark off a checklist of Christian duties every day, but because Jesus has given us his spirit and he's constantly advocating for us before the Father now. My encouragement would be in light of all of this to walk with Christ in that truth. Walk with him in that truth. Deal with others in that truth and love with confidence knowing that you are loved more deeply than you could even know. His grace has been poured out on those who believe.